I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. My guest this week is the historian Sheila Fitzpatrick, whose many books include Everyday Stalinism and most recently, out just now, The Shortest History of the Soviet Union. Her latest piece for the LRB was a diary published in September, responding in part to a book by the Russian anthropologist Albert Baiburin, A History of the Soviet Internal Passport. Hello, Sheila, and thank you very much for talking to me today. Hello, it's a pleasure. So one of the possibly surprising things that your diary makes clear is just how many different kinds of passport there are or there have been. And I thought maybe to begin, you could tell the story of your of your first visit to Russia as a, as a graduate student in 1965, was it? Right. When I first went to the Soviet Union, or rather when I went for the first extended period, that's 1966, uh, and it had been quite difficult to get myself there because of a passport question. In other words, I was Australian, and uh, the Australians did not have an exchange with the Soviet Union. That was the only way you could get there for an extended period. Uh, you had to be authorised by some government. Uh, and the British had an exchange, but I wasn't British. Uh, so I tried to get myself on the British exchange as an Australian and had a long correspondence with the, the Foreign Office, the Commonwealth Office and so on. And finally, uh, very politely, they turned me down. Uh, and I then decided to go another route. And in my piece in the LRB, I called this a marriage of convenience, but I said marriages of convenience are perhaps often not only marriages of convenience. In other words, it, it's, it's always a very complicated story and it was in my case too. But in any case, I decided to get married uh, to uh, somebody with a British passport, a boyfriend of mine from Australia. But he was in Japan. Now, the British Council said if I showed up with a British passport uh, in September, uh, they would send me. Uh, they must have said this sometime like May or June. So the plan was I would go to Japan, we would get married, I would come back, I would apply for naturalization, I would get my British passport and I would go uh, to Russia, to the Soviet Union, uh, which was, uh, of course, extremely stressful and difficult. Uh, and it more or less came off. I, 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 I was late by a week. Uh, but about the passport aspect of the story that I tell in the piece was that I had assumed I was getting a British passport in addition to my Australian passport. I expected two passports to appear when I showed up at the office. Uh, and in, uh, in fact, it was only one passport, the British one. 
And so I said, where is my Australian? And they said, well, we have to send it back to the Australians because they won't allow you to. Uh, once you take another passport, they, they cancel yours. And that turned out to be a terrible moment for me. I had not realized the sort of loss of a sense of identity that would accompany losing a passport all the more because my British passport was in a married name, my married name of Bruce, which was alien to me. I was not used to being called Bruce. I didn't like being called Mrs. Anything. So this person, Mrs. Bruce, uh, had replaced, uh, the British Mrs. Bruce had replaced uh, the Australian Sheila Fitzpatrick. But the Australian Sheila Fitzpatrick was a real person with, with a life and connections and a history. And the British Mrs. Bruce was to me a meaningless entity uh, whose documents I now held. You used the, the phrase, the expression file self, um, which from the, the philosopher Rom Hare's term. So I suppose your file self at this point was Mrs. Bruce, which had nothing to do with your sense of who you were. Yes, that, that is correct. Now, I had not at this point, I think, fully understood the degree to which I existed in various files. And indeed, my existence in various files uh, was minimal compared to what it must have become later. Uh, I, I think Australian intelligence already had a file on me, oddly enough, because I'd done Russian at the university and uh, I'd, I'd gone to a, a, the, the international bookshop that sold Russian books and bought a Russian book and that person there obviously routinely reported on um, people who came in. So that started an Australian file and I think it probable that that file uh, was sent on to Britain because it stops. Uh, the moment I leave, and indeed it records the event of my leaving, as as it were the climactic point of my of my Australian file life. Uh, so the British were just about to have a file on me, and the Soviets weren't opening their file too. I imagine. Did the Australians have a file on your father? Yes, they did, uh, but they uh, they they didn't realise that the person who wrote the Russian book was the daughter of the left wing uh, troublemaker. Uh, that they knew, Brian Fitzpatrick. My mother also had a file. My mother was less active politically, at least in, uh, in, in, in my lifetime, but she had been on the left. Uh, but she, she had a file because she went uh, and did teacher's college, uh, teacher's training, uh, and then got uh, where there was somebody that they were suspicious of in the teacher's training course, and then went to teach in a school where there was an actual communist uh, that they also were keeping tabs on. So they uh, they had a file for my mother, Dorothy Fitzpatrick, also. And in that file, uh, it was remarked that she lived at the same address as Brian Fitzpatrick, so could conceivably be related, which was a very cautious deduction, I thought. <laughs> they didn't make the, the connection with you. And that, that happened again, didn't it, with the Russian authorities who didn't make the connection between Mary Bruce as you were on their official documents under S. Fitzpatrick. Yes, well, that, that was very good luck for me, uh, in a sense, in that I, I went to Russia on my British passport, which described me as Sheila Bruce, Sheila Mary Bruce, and I, for the Russians, had said I would prefer to be known as Mary, although I never was known as Mary and it never worked, but that's what I'd said. Uh, so I live in Russia uh, for the year, Meanwhile, my first article, based on my dissertation, was published in, uh, in a British journal in Soviet studies, and it was published as uh, I, I, I was using my 
maiden name as a professional name. As was usual, however, in British journals at that point, they didn't uh, uh, identify me as Sheila Fitzpatrick, but as S.M. Fitzpatrick. So whoever was set to read the British press to find anti-Soviet articles read my article and decided it would go in his next um, his next collective denunciation of bourgeois falsifiers. Uh, and so that article was published in a, a big circulation Soviet newspaper at the end of the year when I, I was just finishing my stint as a student in Russia. And it was headed, He Who Is Obliged to Conceal the Truth. So I was one of a couple of people who were named as bourgeois writers who were the next thing to spies. They want to find out, do it on the Soviet Union. And that's their so-called research, which makes them essentially the same thing as spies. Now, meanwhile, so S.M. Fitzpatrick is, a, is next thing to a spy. Uh, but Sheila Bruce, which is the, the Russian version of my name, uh, is a graduate, is a female graduate. So S.M. Fitzpatrick is a man uh, in the Russian reading. She, uh, Sheila Bruce is a British exchange student who is has not been identified as a spy. Now, nobody I knew read this newspaper because it was a, a, a sort of nationalist, uh, a non-liberal newspaper. But when I got back to Oxford, to my college, St. Anthony's, there were all kinds of uh, Soviet newspaper watchers there. Uh, and uh, they immediately told me about uh, about the attack, uh, about my, my appearance as next thing to a spy when I got back. But I was already safely out of the Soviet Union then. All these many sort of failures to connect the dots by different surveillance services. Would it be fair to say that one of the things that you were doing with your research in the Soviet archives was trying to connect dots that that people hadn't. And I, I wonder sort of about these, these ways that the worlds or the work of, of spying in academic research overlap or, or are similar kinds of work. I mean, one of your volumes of memoir is called A Spy in the Archives. Yes, and there I, I really try to think about that question, about their gen the Soviet general sense uh, that Western research on the Soviet Union was akin to spying because it uh, basically it involved uh, people trying to find out things that they didn't want to be known and connect dots that they didn't want to be connected. Now, on the face of it, you could respond to that and say, but I'm not a spy. I know I'm not a spy. No intelligence service approached me, recruited me. I'm not a spy, therefore I'm not on nobody's list of spies. On the other hand, I am there as a historian to find out everything I can, and that includes, and perhaps it particularly includes, what they don't want to tell me. You know, I was quite adept at finding out the things that they didn't want to tell me. I had all sorts of techniques. But that means, if you consider that, that means that their their assumption that I'm next thing to a spy is, is not wholly wrong. I, I lost that at the time, and I think probably a decade or so after that, that sense of am I a spy or not in some essential way, uh, that remained with me and then uh, then it dissipated. This wonderful question that could one be a spy without knowing it, um, <laughs> as you put it, but, but presumably and you, know, you, were, you were warned by the British Council before going to be very careful about fraternising with Russians because they would probably be spies, but you and the other exchange students all, all made very good and important friendships. 
Yes. Well, before we went, they took us into this windowless basement, uh, a, a very sinister environment. And then a man who was never introduced, presumably from intelligence, came along and he told us that everyone is spies and we have to be, you know, we're not going to a normal country. Uh, we have to be extremely careful. There will be provocations against us, attempts, attempts to compromise us and uh, sexually in particular, but also currency offences. And what follows from that is then an attempt to blackmail you. Uh, so he laid out all of that and said it's impossible to become friends with Russians because they are probably spies, but in addition they will think you are a spy, so it is impossible. And uh, it's, it's still more is it impossible to think of any closer relationship with a Russian. So off we go, having been told this. I already didn't believe it because I had made an earlier visit and I was quite well aware that you could become friends with Russians. And indeed, there was an element of danger, you might say, but not so great that it put off young people interested in the West. I, I mean, one had great value added, really, by being from the West. But, but what I found when I got there for the year and what I think most of the people on the exchange has found was that we made very close friends. We made one set of very close friends, almost family kind of friends. Uh, and these friends in general remained friends for life. There were peculiarities about this. On The, the, the friendships were much warmer and more family-like, I suppose, than we, most of us were used to coming from Anglo-Saxon uh, traditions. So everybody really enjoyed these friendships. But one of the odd things was that when you'd made your primary group of friends, you really couldn't go out and make other friends. Uh, in other words, that was almost like promiscuity. It, it upset the original friends, and they regarded it as somewhat dangerous because they couldn't trust these other people. Uh, so really, you, you made your original friends and you stayed with them. It became a given, like a family. You know, you can't really go out and shop around for another family. In A Spy in the Archives, you, you write about um, how Igor Satz warned you off Sort of every young every young man you met, he said, was uh, was not to be trusted. Yeah, yes, well, he this, that was the second time I went back when they called him in and said, oh, they had refused me a visa initially, uh, and uh, I had done all sorts of agitation, and I finally got the visa, but uh, to come back for a second year. But they called Igor in and told him that if I stepped out of line, he would be answerable for it. So he told me that, and so he said. Uh, check out with me any new acquaintances. So I'm, you know, I'm at this point, what, 26 or something. So many of my new acquaintances were young men. And one by one, they were judged by Igor to be unacceptable. And after a while, I started to see a pattern and I felt it was actually not related to, to, their, to any KGB connections, which they may or may not have had, but rather to Igor's feeling that it was better to keep me away from young men because he was... You know, he was quite attached to me himself, himself, and uh, yeah. So I, I, I started to see that anybody, any uh, friend or even friendly acquaintance that uh, appeared on the horizon who fell into the young man category, would be um, black blacklisted by Igor. And uh, who, who was he, and how did you meet him? Igor, well, I, I call him uh, my old Bolshevik in this, uh, in, in spying the archive. I met him uh, because he was the brother-in-law, the much younger brother-in-law of the subject of my dissertation, 
one of the first members of the first uh, Bolshevik government, Anatoly Lunacharsky. In the 20s, Igor, who was then in his 20s, uh, had served as literary secretary for Lunacharsky, who was also his brother-in-law. Uh, I first made contact with Lunacharsky's daughter. Uh, she looked me over uh, and basically sent me to Igor for further vetting. That, you know, the sense was he was a senior family member and uh, uh, they would make a collective judgment about whether to admit me to their, well, to their fold, basically. Uh, Igor, unlike Irina, the daughter, Igor sort of took me in immediately. And I think it was partly because, uh, you know, he felt I was a, a, a little girl lost in, in, in Moscow, basically. And he, he, he was a protective kind of man, as well as a flirtatious one. Uh, he did take in waifs and strays. And I thought I came into that category in part because I didn't have a proper winter coat, uh, which he remarked on immediately. In other words, I, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not equipped to cope with the rigors of Moscow. Therefore, I need help with that. Uh, and that involved going around to his place uh, often, several times a week, and sitting listen, listening while he talked, uh, to some degree about Lunacharsky, but basically about everything in the Soviet Union that interested him, or outside it for that matter. So he became, uh, in a sense, my mentor on Soviet history, not just on Lunacharsky, and very, I think, very influential in, in the way I came to see the place. Uh, so that there's always a sort of black comedy was uh, Igor's sort of vein of narrative. And I think I inherited that. I picked it up from him. I was thinking about the, the research that you were doing in the, in the archives in the, in the 60s and the, looking at m Moscow phone books, comparing the phone books from 1937 and 1939 to see if there was a way to sort of track the number of people who were... Um, killed in the purges. Yes, that was quite a funny piece of research. That was not my original. Th that that was we're already, I think, in the seventies. Would it be at that point? At that point, we had extremely little quantitative data in, in on the basis of which one could estimate the scope of the purges. And there was, to some degree, an argument about how much it was focused on elites and other specified groups, and how much it was. It, it, it was universal in the population. Uh, so no access to anything like the Gulag archive or anything uh, of, of that kind. Now, telephone books were not accessible in the West. There had been a ban on the export. The Soviets had not exported, had not allowed telephone books to leave for security reasons. Uh, and they treated them as, as basically as high security items, uh, even within the country. I mean, you didn't since the war, people did routine did not routinely have telephone books. They they knew people's telephone numbers by asking them, or occasionally going to a, a so-called information bureau um, to find them. But I realized that in the Lenin Library, uh, I found the telephone books in the catalog, a list of subscribers to Moscow Telephone Network. So I ordered them just to see what they had in them, what kind of information. Uh, I was also ordering city directories. This is just, you know, functioning as a social historian who wants to know all kinds of data sources. So then I realized that uh, there is one was published at the beginning of 37, which is roughly the beginning of the Great Purges. And another one was published uh, at the beginning of 39, which is a few months after the end. I was not looking for just for attrition, 
because I had no reason, no way of knowing what was the normal attrition in a two-year period. Uh, what I had, uh, by chance, from my other archival work, I had a complete list of office holders in the Ministry of Heavy Industry. So that I take to be high elite in contrast to a, a somewhat broader population, not a hugely broader population, but a somewhat broader population that has a telephone in the 30s. Uh, so my list, I, I forget, there were probably 100 or so in my uh, Ministry of Heavy Industry list. So I ran that group against a random sample. But all kinds of complications ensued in doing this because, first of all, I'm sitting in the Lenin Library in the in the in the the first hall for for important um, Soviets and 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 any foreigners that happen to be around. So I'm sitting there with these huge telephone books, uh, sort of writing things down, and I noticed that librarians started to walk behind my chair back and forth a little bit, you know, to see what on earth is she doing with these books. And clearly they, they were not sure what I was doing, but they thought it probably wasn't anything good. But they didn't take away the books that I had. But I sensed, I had the feeling, you know, that this is, uh, I, I thought they'd noticed something and, and uh, there might be trouble in the future. So I did the quickest thing. Instead of doing a, a, a control group, uh, which was, let's say, every 10th name, or something like that. I took one letter. I took a small letter of the alphabet, the letter U, like Uliana for whatever. Uh, so I, I took that letter. It was about the same size as my group from the ministry, and I did it like that. And so what I show, what what my figures showed when I got home and and and, and sort of worked with my data, uh, it showed uh, a, a, a strongly higher uh, attrition rate of the high officials as opposed to the random group. So I went off and I gave a talk about this at Harvard, and Harvard was a very Cold War place, so they were also very suspicious of me at that time. So they jumped on this. They, they, they basically said it. Their, their view was evidently that the purges would be hitting every part of society with equal weight. I don't know why they thought that, but it was a very peculiar approach. But in any case, they thought that. So they doubted. They said, you didn't do the the, uh, the random group properly. The letter U is not acceptable. Uh, you have to do one in every 10. So, okay, went back to the Soviet Union, or rather the next time I went back, I ordered the telephone books. But strangely, they couldn't come. They wouldn't come. I, I should say that they were held in a repository which was beyond uh, beyond the limit that foreigners were allowed to go. In Moscow, you had the 40-kilometer limit. It was just outside that. So I couldn't go myself at that point. Had to order them to be brought down to the library. They wouldn't bring them down anymore. Uh, so I was going back more or less every year. I would order them every year. I wouldn't get them. Uh, but I, I didn't give up. And uh, so come Perestroika, first of all, I think I could... Uh, I could already go out to the repository in Perestroika. I think they removed that 40-kilometer le limit. But I also think I got them actually in the Lenin Library. So they brought me back the telephone books. I did it the proper way. I did the one in every 10 count. It took me forever, of course. Uh, and then I went back and I looked at the data, and it was the same result. <laughs> Slightly 
more favourable to the argument I was making that that high elite was hit hit harder, but essentially the same result. Uh, so I at the next uh, occasion I gave a paper on that. But by that time, so everybody just said yes, yes, that seems reasonable. In other words, time had changed in Sovietology. It was perhaps I don't know, fifteen years, twenty years after. Anyway, I, I was quite pl- proud of my stubbornness, you know, that I didn't forget <laughs> that every time I go to the Lenin Library, I put in this application just in case things have changed. Yeah, I'm quite right. And, was, and of course, a phone number is a very particular kind of file self, I suppose. I mean, even more so with mobile phones and the amount of now that the idea in a way, our, our phone number is now almost the most unique identifying number that we have, even more than a passport number, perhaps. It, it's actually awful when you, as as with me, I'm not using in the UK, I'm using a SIM card, which is not my normal number. And this causes all kinds of problems. But it's it's back to the old Soviet situation with emails, isn't it? Because normally to know somebody's email, they need to tell it to you. In other words, you don't go to the telephone book to look up their email. So you've lost that public repository of this information traveling on a on a different sim card is like using a passport with the wrong name in it oh it's terrible i, w- I won't even describe my sufferings with that, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> with that SIM card. before we continue a quick message from the new books network listeners and readers of the london review of books know how difficult it is to keep up with all the latest books the new books network publishes over 80 interviews a week with authors and academics about their new books and among their hosts is the lrb contributor owen bennett jones you can find nbn interviews at newbooksnetwork.com or by searching new books network in your podcast app with a library of more than 15,000 interviews in over 120 subjects New Books Network is one of the most valuable resources on the internet. You described the the visit that you made, the research visit, as as an exchange. But was part of that exchange, presumably the Soviet graduate students were not allowed to make a return visit to London to study in the archives where they wouldn't have been allowed to leave? Oh, no. It was an exchange. There were 20 of us and 20 of them, uh, but they didn't waste their time sending historians. No, (laughs) they they, they sent physicists and mathematicians and, uh, you know, people who could pick up important stuff and spies, of course. Now, the British presumably also sent, sent spies. It's impossible that they didn't use the exchange for that purpose because it was so difficult to get anybody into the Soviet Union for an extended period. And this was one of the few opportunities. So we must have had... Uh, perhaps we didn't have as many Soviet spies as were in the Soviet group going to Britain, but um, you know the going assumption was that maybe three or so in the group. Who in the Soviet Union at that time would have had a passport? Oh, very few people and diplomats. But but I think in the Soviet Union I, now you've caught me a bit because I'm not completely Sorry. sure about the, uh, the 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 protocols for issuing official passports. But I don't think. Uh, you know, whereas we have our international passport and when we're not using it, it sits at home and it's our permanent possession until it has to be renewed because it reaches its expiry date. I think in the Soviet Union, they gave them short-term passport. So, you know, you you, you, are, you will be on a, an international trip from May 15th to, to July 1, that kind of thing. Uh, and so that you had to, um, I think, with a possible exception of career diplomats, you 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 had to uh, apply for it on each occasion. But it was very rare uh, for people that one met to have 
travelled. Irina did. Sometimes she had been to Switzerland and to France, but she was active in the friendship societies that were sort of voluntary state-controlled organizations uh, dealing with those countries. So French was her, her language. Uh, but Irina was very well connected in Soviet society. Nobody else that I knew, uh, including Igor, uh, had... Well, except in the war, Igor had been outside the Soviet Union during the war, but as as a soldier. Uh, so um, later on, when I say nobody had done foreign travel, that applies to my first visit in the late 60s. But I kept going, you know, over the decades. And by the 70s and, of course, still more the 80s, where they found more opportunities to travel, in particular to Eastern Europe. There, there were gradations. To travel to the capitalist world required the greatest degree of vetting. Uh, to travel to Eastern Europe was easier. So a passport in the Soviet Union would have mostly meant an internal passport. Yes, the internal passport in the Soviet Union was a, a completely different document from the passport you would use for foreign travel. Uh, the internal passport uh, was something that everybody had. Uh, you were issued it at, 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 at 16, and uh, it was a very precious possession. Well, when I say everybody, when I first went there, peasants were still not entitled to passports. That changed in the 70s. Uh, but urban population uh, uh, all had internal passports with information and the kind of information that is on it. That's one of the things that Baburian examines and that was also interesting to me because initially uh, one of the uh, the items that was entered in it was your social class because from the Bolshevik point of view after the revolution, uh, social class was enormously important because if you were if you were proletarian or a poor peasant, you were probably reliable. You were probably uh, you were a natural ally. And if you were bourgeois or indeed if you also if you were bourgeois intelligentsia, and intelligentsia was by its definition bourgeois, uh, that meant that you needed to be treated with uh, more suspicion. So the, those passport entries had their particular political salience, and uh, th that lasted, I think, till the end of the 30s. Nationality was also entered. Now, nationality in the Soviet Union, different thing from citizenship. Everyone is a Soviet citizen, uh, but within Soviet the Soviet Union, you have a particular nationality, which... Uh, you get from your parents, or if the parents are different nationality, you made a choice when you reached your uh, majority. Uh, and so you were a Soviet citizen, Russian by nationality, Uzbek by nationality, Ukrainian by nationality, and so on. Now, the another entry that uh, is normally in passports, uh, which is gender or sex, that curiously was omitted from the Soviet passports. And I assume that's because they thought it was self-evident. Uh, that is, there's a, a picture, but also in Russian you have a patronymic, and the form of the pat patronymic, the grammatical form, is different if you're a man and, and if you're a woman. Ivanovich or Ivanovna, yeah. Exactly, yes. And the, the, that question of nationality, I mean, of course, that distinction, the distinction between nationality and citizenship was hardly unique to the, to the Soviet Union because one of the things that you... You mentioned in the piece, and Mahmoud uh, Mamdani wrote about this recently uh, in the LRB, is that, that the reason that you lost your British citizenship was because the British laws to restrict immigration from the Commonwealth 
we're a way of bringing questions of nationality and race into definitions of of citizenship because if you as it were 10 years earlier you would have had a british passport oh yes i i would have been i would have been fine i i yes when i arrived that was the time when the restrictions had been introduced and and so one couldn't come in as british anymore uh but it was new enough and it was of course essentially uh not directed against white commonwealth but against the rest uh but the immigration officers used to comment on that when we came in they would apologize you know sorry you have to go in the foreign you you, you can't go in the british to white white entrance like me they would you know say sorry it's not our decision it came from above and when did you get your american passport well it was the same story ridiculously so i'd got my british passport and i could go on the british exchange uh but then i ended up working in america basically i could no longer go on the british exchange because i was not living in britain and working in a british institution uh but for the american exchange i'm talking again about exchanges with the soviet union so we're in the 70s and you can still only go for an extended period if you're on somebody's exchange so i couldn't go on the american exchange which was called irex uh without uh, a us passport uh so i I had to go through the whole rigmarole and I I tried to get a US passport on the basis of being employed at Columbia University but I didn't have tenure so so that didn't work they they sort of realized that um uh that was a a, a finite uh, a period of employment and so then uh <laughs> well I married again I had uh, my British husband and I had uh, very amicably sort of separated after a couple of years we we did live together uh but uh, he'd gone back to japan and uh, anyway i so i i, I moved on and i, I uh, married an american and uh yes so <laughs> so i then applied uh for us citizenship on the grounds of marriage but oddly enough when i turned up for the interview they talked only about my employment they they seemed not to realize that i'd applied on grounds of marriage and uh, and they accepted the fact i forget where i was employed at that point perhaps texas uh and perhaps it was tenured but in any case while i had applied on grounds of marriage they treated it as on grounds of employment and they asked that wonderful question that the americans ask uh, which is what do you want your name to be and i i was taken aback by that because i as you can see from my various writings i have a strong feeling that i have a name i have a real name though sometimes i'm referred to by an unreal name but i do have a real name which is shelif patrick so that was it was to me absolutely clear that that's the name in which i get the passport and you got your australian passport back when they changed the laws on dual citizenship yes well i I'd, i'd given up the thought of getting the australian passport back and i wasn't i wasn't really anticipating returning to australia and you know it was a long way behind me by i think we're now in the 2000s i'm teaching at the university of chicago and the um consul there the australian consul whom I'd had no contact with but they they got in touch with me and they invited me to to dinner I think because the Australian ambassador uh at that point had earlier served in the Soviet Union and or, or, or Russia and was interested in meeting me or whatever so I went to dinner it was extremely pleasant uh, but at the dinner they said you know you could get your Australian passport back because there is a new law that said if you had a a, a business or professional reason 
uh, for giving up your citizenship at an earlier point, uh, you may now apply to get it back. So I, I immediately filled in the form and I gave it to them. So, it, it, you know, it went in with, with, with uh, so I, I was confident of success. And indeed, it was successful. And uh, soon I had my Australian passport back. And I think these questions of having the more than one passport, that one of the, and the, the word passportization, which, as you talk about in your piece, means in the 1930s in the Soviet Union meant one thing. But um, it means something rather different in Russia now. And that, isn't this right, that Putin has said that anyone who lives in the regions in the east of Ukraine that Russia has now annexed automatically can get a Russian passport? Yes. Well, they said that even before annexation. Uh, so that in the period pre-annexation, but of confrontation and war, uh, that offer was open to everybody resident. I think it just in Donbass and Luhansk, if I'm not mistaken, mm -hmm. but I could be wrong about that. Uh, and that was clearly an attempt to Russify, I suppose you might say, or to cement connections of the population there with, with Russia. And so, and you didn't have to give up other passports. It was so it was offered as a as a privilege rather than a, a, a sort of zero sum game when you you stopped being one thing and became another thing. I think quite a few people uh, took it up, but you know now one can see it very much as part. Well, it was always looking very much as part of a something like an annexation annexation strategy. When the Soviet Union broke up and the former Soviet republics became independent, what what happened with people's citizenship then? How, how much choice did people have about the kind of citizenship they would have? Well, there was a huge mess and a and, and very complicated changing legislation. It's uh, different if you were a Russian living in a non-Russian republic and if you were living in a non-Russian republic but uh, saw that Russia as the successor uh, to the Soviet Union and, and wished to retain a connection. Uh, the Russians living in in Kazakhstan or Ukraine or whatever, uh, I think for them it was relatively easy. For the others, for non-Russians living in former Soviet republics that weren't Russia, usually uh, in post-Soviet times, uh, the way was not particularly easy to acquire a Russian passport, but every now and again some exceptions would be made, usually for territories that, for example, in the Caucasus was, was nosing around in. So that question of nationality that appeared in people's um, internal passports so. in the Soviet Union, did that, yeah? It is a very complicated sequence of legislation and, and I, I, I don't want to get uh, no, course, too detailed yeah, because yes. I, I don't have it at my fingertips. Last question. If you could only keep one of your three passports, presumably, I mean, you've written of your family that for misfits in Australian society, we were extraordinarily Australian, three or four generations on both sides. If you could keep only one of your three passports, would it, would it be your Australian one? Oh, yes, it would be my Australian one. I, you know, I've gone back to live there. I'm even employed there. I'm a professor at an at, at Australian Catholic University in Melbourne, my hometown. So that's, uh, that's definitely coming, uh, coming back to roots. In terms of my own sense of who I am and other people's sense of me, I, I would feel myself to be Australian, but on the other hand, with, with various feet, even more feet than I actually have in other places. And I think Australians would see me in, in the same way. In other words, they would see me as somewhat one of theirs, 
but also to some degree not one of theirs. And there are, around the world, there are maybe six, six, seven cities that when I fly into, I have some feeling of coming home. Uh, now, Melbourne is one of them, and Sydney is one of them, but so is Berlin, so is Moscow, so is London. Uh, so, in other words, I would choose the Australian passport, but the memory uh, of those other identities uh, doesn't entirely leave me. Yeah, Sheila Fitzpatrick, thank you very much. Thank you. You can read Sheila Fitzpatrick's pieces in the LRB's online archive and buy her books from the London Review Bookshop. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.